to begin this morning and carry it over into the new year, a study um, called Love to, to Love. And the idea there is simply coming off of what we discussed last Sunday morning uh, was the, the promise of love that came in the form of a birth of the Son of God. And not just that, but the, the love that was expressed and demonstrated through his life and through his death and his burial and his resurrection. And the thing about love is this, that it's more than just something that ought to be received. It's something that should be demonstrated. And as you go through the, the books of the New Testament, we find a lot of different um, examples and a lot of different opportunities that are given to us to show what that love looks like. Um, we understand that God is love. We understand that He loved us. We understand John three sixteen that His love was so great that He loved the world and, and sent His Son to die for us. We, we understand to some degree the gospel. But, but my, my question for you this morning as we go into a new year is, because of that understanding of the love of God, because we understand what Christmas is about, because we understand the love that was demonstrated to us, what does that do to you and I? How does that change the way that we live? How does that change the way we view the relationships that God has allowed us to develop? How does that change the way that we relate with people? And I want to share with you, I mean, there are at, at least, if not more than, 100 different instances in the Bible where God says to do or to not do something one to another. Uh, and this morning, I wanted to kind of show you the first one as we look into Galatians 6. This is, I'm going to be totally honest with you, this is a study that we have looked at before, even since I've been here, but I really wanted to begin with this one as we go into the new year because I think it's vitally important. But in all of the different verses and all of the different sets of instruction that consist of that phrase, one to another, they all boil down to this idea of we have been loved by God so that we can love people. And so to help us understand what that looks like, I want to spend a few weeks and just kind of jump right into the different one another passages that you find in Scripture. It's a study, to be honest with you, besides this one, that I've never done before. I've never specifically looked at the instructions that are given to us in, in how we ought to relate to each other. Do this one to another. Love one another. This morning, and, and let's go ahead and establish our premise, you look in verse number 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now here's the first one another statement, verse 2. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now it's interesting there um, that when you look at this idea of one another, it has the idea of burden bearing. And the first thing I wanted you to see before ever even step foot into a year is this. If we are going to love as Christ loves, then we have to act as Christ acted. And in verse number two, the instruction there, the one another for the morning is this, that we bear one another's burdens. Now we're going to come back to this. The, the founder of the Salvation Army, General William Booth, was once invited to but unable to speak at a conference. 
His health would not allow him to travel, so instead of being present to address the the crowd that got together, he simply sent to the delegates a one-worded message. And he requested that that message was to be shared to everybody else who had gathered internationally. That one word that William Booth sent was simply this. It was the word, others. Now, folks, listen. I know we're tired this morning. I know that this has been a long week for some of us. Miles have been already racked up on the odometer of our vehicle, going from place to place to place to celebrate the birth of Christ. But the one thing we cannot forget this morning, coming out of Christmas, where it seems so natural, is going into a new year, is that that new year should have a focus on others. Our minds and our our preoccupation should not be about me, about my schedule, about what I have to do, the places I have to be. The biblical perspective on the way that we spend our lives can be consumed with and defined by the one-word answer that William Booth sent to that congregation, and that word is this, others. What would happen... Think about this. What would happen if a church decided that their existence was going to be more than just getting together with friends and family, but would be legitimately to be focused on other people? What what do you think would happen? How would that change the way the life of the church continued if we were simply focused on others? You see, this one word summarized the entire ministry of Christ. It could serve as the motto of Christians. But I want to tell you this in in a very revealing study, and that is simply this, that churches are not even so much silently anymore, but tiptoeing away from this idea of others. As a matter of fact, there's a book that was released called Unchristian. If you haven't read it, then I would encourage you to read this book. The author's name is David Kinneman. It's, it's several years old now, so I'm sure the statistics are a little out of date, but I don't think what is shared in that book is out of date. Kinneman said this in this book, It is hard to overestimate how firmly people reject and feel rejected by Christians. Now, if you hear that statement and think, well, they should feel rejected because we we, we know what's right. We have God's word. We don't compromise on our convictions. We don't compromise on biblical standards. Then you're exactly 100% right. But when the Bible calls us to love one another in that statement, and when our mindset is on others, here's the way Paul says it. Although we have the truth, the Bible says, and Paul teaches us to teach the truth in what? Say it. In love. And at which point we reject other people because of our self-pride, because of our self-righteousness, when we push away other people because of our arrogance and because of the possession of God's Word to the point where we shove them so far off into the distance that we, we, we do not allow ourselves an opportunity to share with them the gospel. Listen, we have eternally injured that person. It's others, folks. And Kenneth said this, the explanation as to why people are rejected by Christians is a, is a very complex one. And there are, I mean, I, I wrote down 10 of them. I'm not even going to go through the list right now. There's all kinds of different reasonings behind them, but all of these descriptions scream one thing. We, as a church, are no longer concerned about others. We're concerned about getting together. We're concerned 
comfortable. We're concerned about seeing our friends and our family. And, and the thing about it is, and, and, and listen, let's, let's stomp on each other's toes for just a minute. I think this is important, that a church has become so introspective that we have forgotten that our mission as a church is not simply to come together on Sunday mornings. And the definition of the word others does not just include people that come together in this building, or if you go to another church on Sundays and you're here visiting, whatever church you call home, the definition of others and loving one another is not always relegated to just the people that come together week in and week out. That's not the mission that God has called us to. In that book, Kinnaman had a co-author, his name was Gabe Lyons, and he recounted the first time he read through the data that they had uncovered right before writing the book. Listen to this quote. I think I've shared this with you before. Gabe Lyons said this, I'll never forget sitting in Starbucks, pouring through the research results on my laptop. As I soaked it in, glanced at the people around me and was overwhelmed with the thought that this is what they think of me as a Christian. It was sobering to know that if I had stood up and announced myself to that crowd at Starbucks as a Christian, they would have associated me with every negative perception that has been outlined in that book. Anytime someone is critiqued, we automatically become introspective, and so I started thinking, why? Why would people view us as Christians so harshly? And during our Sunday evening study, he said, on the fruits of the Spirit, it dawned on me, the reason why the unsaved world feel rejected by Christians is because he was doing a, a study on the fruits of the Spirit, and it was the lack of the very first fruit of the Spirit. Do you know what it is? It's a lack of love. It's the lack of others-focused love that makes the unsaved world feel like we do not care about where they spend eternity. And so I thought, if this is how we're viewed by, the, by those outside of the church, I wonder if the same could be true about those inside of the church. In that same book that I've referenced, and this is my last reference to it, the statistic was given that fewer than half of churchgoers, including born-again Christians, felt strongly that their church, listen to this, please, wake up, that their church demonstrated unconditional love. And so I don't know how many people are here this morning, but if you think about this statistically, half of us would feel like those that gather together week in and week out at Ashland, half of us would feel like we struggle in the, in the area of loving each other unconditionally. You know what Jesus says? They shall know that we're disciples. How? Because of our love for, the, for one another, for the brethren. Hang on now. If that's how we are to communicate that we are a, a follower of Christ is by the way that we love each other, and half of us would say this morning, I feel like when I come to church, there's not unconditional love. Listen, we've messed this thing called the church up entirely. We have, we have taken something that God instituted and we have interjected into it how we think things ought to be done and we hold conferences to tell you how it ought to be done and we do things the way we've always seen it done 
All of that to say, we have interjected our opinions and our methodologies, and we have taken what God designs, and we have taken it and we've set it off to the side, and so that we are now to the point where, even as Christians, we don't feel like half the people in this room even loves me if they really got to know me. That's a sad state of affairs, folks. That's a scary thought to think that the, the church people, that Christians feel rejected because they come to church and believe this thing of unconditional love is absent. See, the fruit, which is a singular word, if you ever studied that, the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is, first of all, love. But then Jesus gives us a new commandment, and here's kind of the springboard for the series of love to love, that we love one another as I have loved you, Jesus says in John chapter 13. So if that's the new commandment that Jesus gives to us, in Galatians 5 verse 13, we are called to lovingly serve one another. Then the question then is, what in the world does this look like? (laughs) How do we live this out? How do we demonstrate this type of love? Well, you turn to Galatians chapter 6. I really just want to get through maybe one or two, possibly three verses of this chapter this morning. And you come to verse number one that we already read together, but let's, again, to refresh our memories, let's see what Paul has to say in Galatians 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Well, who is is the, the audience Paul writing to in verse number one? Okay, brethren, identifying those who are fellow believers in the church of Galatia, this is, a, this is a, an address, this is a letter written to people who claim to be Christ followers. Brethren, it's a community of love-based commonality of a relationship with Christ. See, the audience that Paul is addressing is a very pointed one. They are brothers and sisters in Christ who share a common faith in Christ. But not only that, They should share the common new commandment that Christ outlined, and that is this, that we love one another. So brethren, and here's another descriptive term, ye which are spiritual, those who are spirit-led, those who are spirit-walking, those who are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Listen, there is not a prerequisite on verse number one that says, brethren, ye which are perfect, brethren, ye which have all of life figured out, Brethren, every one of you that have dotted your I's and crossed your T's and you have mastered the art of following Christ, this verse is for you. Now, the Bible says there, the audience is, brethren, Christians who are spiritual, who are trying to daily live by the grace of God and following the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, if that is true about you, not that you're perfect, not that you have mastered the the, the obedience of, of, to God's word, not that you have it all figured out, but if you are sincerely desiring to be a spiritual person, following the leading of God, then here's what the Bible says. This verse is for you. You are the audience that is being written to. Spiritual. Look at verse number one then. What's the aim? What's the purpose of this verse? If a man be overtaken in a fault. So brethren, if you observe in your body of believers, your local church, someone who is 
overtaken a man. Every man, every woman, every one of us, because we know simply all have sinned. And there are going to be times where we are what the Bible says, overtaken. Literally has the idea of, of to eat before somebody else has opportunities. Now, I think part of the lack of energy in the room is because of this reason. Um, did we eat too much over the past week? Yeah, you can give that an amen. Because we're going to diet in January anyway, right? We're set some resolutions and we're going to be on that treadmill every day, right? That treadmill that's in the basement that hasn't seen the light of day in months. That's going to be starting January 1. It's go time. And so this morning in church, there's a silent hush. It's an eerie feeling in here right now. You've created an atmosphere that's very uncomfortable. Um, and I think a lot of it is because we are still digesting everything that we have consumed in the past week. And to be honest with you, for most of us, I know our family, it's not done yet. And so January, we're, we're going to, and this is the joke, we push everything to January because there's not much there. Um, there's, there's, not, there's no holidays to look for. There's a couple birthdays in our family. But as far as holidays go, there's not much there. So it makes sense. We're going to diet. We're going to get back on track. We're going to get back on the wagon starting in January. I wonder, though, did you, did you have to? Now, I know this year it might be a little bit different because the way food is distributed. But have you ever been in that situation where the, the food is all laid out across a, a spread, you know, all the way down the table, and people just went and grabbed their plates, and they, they went up to the line as they were ready? And you always have that person that sits off to the side, no, 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 you go, you go. And then you always have those people that grab the plate, and they're the first ones there. Um, I don't know which one you are. We're not going to jump to conclusions and try to peg you to which person you are. But when you think about those people that rush the table, they are, they are determined to get whatever their favorite um, item is on their plate. That is the idea of someone that is overtaken. They're willing to knock everybody out of the way to get what they came for. To get that food before everybody else has a chance to even grab a plate. Now think about this. I want you to keep that mental image in your mind, okay? Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, overtaken... Literally satisfying your desires above the desires of other people. Because listen, there might be other people that are hungry there, believe it or not. You're probably not the only person that came for lunch at whatever get-together it was. But when it comes to getting that food, I'm going to get the food on my plate. You know, we've, we've gone to um, the Dominican several times and served down there. And one of the highlights of that trip is going into the sugarcane villages and, and uh, being able to try to share God's word with these children. And I don't know if you've ever had a chance to be in that environment of a literal third world where, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but they, they, you have the naked kids running around with a pan and a rock and they're loving life. It's really humbling to watch that. And we would, they had kind of, you know, all of the shacks were all kind of built around a circle and right in the middle in the Dominican baseball is everything. Um, gives you a different slant. If you're a major league baseball player, or base, yeah, baseball player, baseball lover, it gives you a different perspective on major leagues, how they handle things in the, in the Dominican. And, um, you know, they, they built all of these shacks right around the center area. And there's a basketball court off on one side. Don't get excited when I say basketball court. There wasn't a net. I mean, it was just, it was rough. And then there was a makeshift baseball field right in the middle. But off to the side there was a community center. And they would let us come in, and as soon as they would see the bus come in the front gates there, the kids would flock to the bus because they knew um, something on board is going to be exciting for them. Because I'm sure it's 
out of the ordinary. They, they become accustomed to groups coming in. And so we'd go to this community center. We'd split the crowd in half, and we'd take some outside, and we'd run some games. And while they were doing games, we'd have others inside the community center, and, and they would be um, trying to um, teach God's Word to these boys and girls. And I say trying to because these, these children, and, and honestly, to their credit, they don't know any better. Their parents are not disciplining. They're not really instructing much, and if they're there at all, to be honest. And, and so right at the end of it, we would have candy. And I tell you what, if you ever want to get mugged somewhere, bring a bag of candy into a sugarcane village in the Dominican and watch what happens. I'm sure Chris has scars on his arms, literal, from, from being clawed, you know, trying to get to that candy. And, and, and what happens in that, that moment of absolute pandemonium is nobody is concerned about somebody else getting there first. It's me or nothing. And they would rush the person with the candy, and they would claw at your arms to the point of sometimes where, where we didn't, but one of the staff would have to come in and physically move a child off to the side because they were so obsessed with getting that piece of candy, and that might be the highlight of their day or their week. And that idea is, if you can imagine that, is, is that extreme self-centeredness that I am going to get what I want regardless of the outcome, regardless of the side effects. I am so overtaken by this desire to sin in this manner that I am going to shove everyone else to the side because it's all about me and no one else. Now listen, we may not fight over candy, but we certainly can fight the temptation to be consumed with me. Now, our consumption might look a little bit different than someone in a third world country, or as we sit here together this morning, what consumes me might be different than what consumes you. But at the end of the day, every one of us struggle with this idea of being overtaken with a, here's the word, a fault. Something that is overstepping of the boundaries that God has defined for us. Every one of us in this room is guilty of on a daily basis of stepping over the boundaries that God has established. Why? Because when it comes to life, guys, it's all about me. And, and whether we like to admit that or not, we say the same thing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every day of the week. It's all about me. And here's what the scripture says. Here's the aim. A man, which includes every one of us when we're overtaken in a fault, when we overstep boundaries, family, here's the question. When someone oversteps those boundaries, the question then becomes, how do we react? To the person who has overstepped boundaries that God has defined for us. When we hear about someone in the church, this is written to believers. When we hear about someone who has been overtaken by a temptation to sin, what is our response? And so, again, just to prove a point, um, I, I brought someone to help me with this. Who, who can I, I beat on? Come here, come here Hudson. Um, come on, real quick, real quick. They have lunch to get to. Let's go. I used Eli last time, so I can't beat on him. So, come here, Hudson. This is my oldest son, Hudson, wearing my clothes yet again. So, Hudson, I want you to think about this. We're going to pretend, because this does not happen, right? This is totally, we didn't discuss this before, right? You can agree. Okay, I did not set you up for this, but this is totally out of the blue. I'm making you really uncomfortable right now, aren't I? Good, perfect. Very good. So let's pretend just for a second that Hudson this week was overtaken with the desire to smart off to his mom. 
I'm sure that only happens in the Neil house. And, and it's not this one that we have the most problems of. It's, a, it's that one. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, I was trying to deflect the attention off Hudson. Let's say for just a second, though, that Hudson has totally hypothetical, because this would never happen, he's the poster child of what a son should be. Let's say just for a second that in, in the heat of the moment, when he is told to go upstairs, and, and what does mom tell you to do that drives you crazy? Laundry. Go upstairs and switch the laundry. Hudson decides that he would rather do something else because we are bent towards what? We're bent towards self. I don't want to do the laundry because who wants to do laundry? I don't want to switch it over. I know it would be a help to you. I know it would be encouraging you, but I don't want to. And in that moment, Hudson gets a little lip with his mom. And it comes back, just say right here, and it comes back to church that the pastor's kid has a smart mouth. Now this is, again, totally hypothetical. And I think it's one of those sins that we can understand with a 13-year-old boy. And so we could paint this picture in a much more severe light, but just follow where I'm going with this premise. When we find out that someone has been, in this instance, overtaken in the fault of smarting off to his mouth, or overtaken in a fault, whatever the definition of the sin might be, what is our response to the Hudsons of the world who has been overtaken, who has overstepped the boundaries that God has designed? And I brought with me, Oh, yes, this is happening right now. I have brought with me a rod of discipline, <laughs> a baseball bat. It's plastic, see, I'm, and I'm not going to use it. Um, and, and so what if I decided, you know what, the only reasonable thing, now, now, this is from the perspective of a church member, not a parent, and I'm not using baseball bats at home, so don't take this the wrong way. But what would happen in just a minute that if we found out somebody in the church had been overtaken in a fault, and we decided to go find our verbal baseball bat, and we absolutely took the person who is already down, and we verbally hammered them into the ground. You know, we are, as a Christian, we're in an unusual breed who has mastered the art of beating people when they're down. It's a unique thing to say that we have an unconditional love for someone and when we find out that they have sin in their life, which is all of us, we have figured out how to tactfully treat a person in a fault as if they are our personal pinata, and we wail on them as if they're not suffering enough. And we take the baseball bat, a lot of times, we discussed this in Sunday school, I told you it's going to come up, we take the, the weapon of our tongue. Can you believe what they did? I can't believe, I thought they were better than that. Uh, they grew up in the church, how could they? Why would they make that decision? As if we're any better. And so instead of doing what the scripture says in Galatians 6, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restores such a one. Our translation of the verse is, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, beat down. Hammer them into the ground because they don't feel bad enough, because they're not overridden with guilt enough. So Christians who are called to unconditional love one to another demonstrate that love by what? By absolutely bashing someone who's already down. Listen, I don't know if you watch media at all, but we're seeing this all over the place. I mean, one prominent pastor, what, two, three weeks ago, was exposed because of his of multiple affairs. And what does Christianity do? We kick the curve as a pastor now i'm not saying that he has not disqualified himself from that position because certainly he has 
But at what point do we become concerned with that word restoration? And not isolation. It was already quiet before service, so I'm going to assume that we're okay. And so after, hold this for me, Bob. After this, here's what happens. Mike, I'm, I'm assuming this one's off. I couldn't find anything else, but, but let's say just for a second that we've taken our opportunity to beat him down, and then we grab our microphone. And in Sunday school, we define this primarily modern-day terms. Um, I, I tried to find a bullhorn to keep the alliteration. I couldn't, so I found a microphone. And then we take our microphone to social media, and we go online, and we share articles, and we blast people. And so we take Hudson, who just had a bad day, ran his mouth to his mom, we pound him into the ground, and then we take our voice box and we communicate it to everybody. Now listen, if we are others-focused, what have we done to this young man? Do you think the next time he falls, he's going to be quick to run back to the Lord or back to somebody else to find counsel and help? Do you think the, the natural reaction to being overtaken, because this isn't a one-and-done scenario, you Kentucky fans who love Kentucky like I do, this isn't their basketball program. He's not going to come running back to the church because church is full of perfect people. And when you fail, then those perfect people are the same ones that grab their bats and their microphones and they beat you down and they tell everybody about it, about how bad that person was and how they, don't, they can't figure it out. Hang on now. Hold this one for me. Hang on. Church, listen, because if there is anything else that will get us riled up to go into the new year, this should be it. At what point does the new commandment that Christ gave us to love one another look like beating somebody down and then telling everybody else about it? Please tell me where that is, scriptural. Please, I, I will come back next Sunday and tell you everything that I have taught you this morning was wrong if you can show me a chapter and verse where it says that a demonstration of loving each other is by beating somebody down who's fallen into sin and then going around and telling everybody about it. You're not going to find it. It's not there. Because the truth be told, every one of us in this room could come up here and we could stand right in Hudson's place. It may not be smarting off to mom and dad, although I have my suspicions about some of you. It might be a different type of sin. Because what does Romans 6 teach us? All have sinned. So why in the world, let me have this and you can go sit down, bud. Thank you for allowing me to put you on the spot like that. Why do we think and where do we get the definition of loving each other as carrying our bats and our bullhorns and proclaiming the awfulness of somebody else Instead of, what does Galatians 6 teach us to do? Brethren, ye which are a spiritual um, beat down. Brethren, ye which are a spiritual announce to the world. Brethren, ye which are a spiritual post on Facebook. No, folks, listen to me. Very careful. There is a word that has become a lost art, and I don't know why that is except to say a lot. It might be rooted in self-righteousness because when we see the sins in somebody else, it makes us feel a little bit better about our own. But the premise in Galatians chapter 6, verse number 1 is this. Brethren, if a man oversteps the boundaries and enters into a fault, 
ye which are spiritual, and you need to highlight, underline, circle, draw arrows to the word that comes after. And the word after spiritual is restoration. Looking at the sins of somebody else to feel better about ourselves is nothing shy of arrogance. And arrogance is perhaps the most socially acceptable form in the church today. In this culture of abundance, one of the ways Satan can keep Christians neutralized is to wrap us up in pride, Kinnaman says. So the answer to this whole problem is this, brethren, um, and I think the, the appropriate term in verse number one should be, brethren, when a man is overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore. Because yes, we are going to be a church that stands against and preaches against sin, but we're not going to leave you in a state of hopelessness and helplessness because that's not the love of God. Jesus did not come down on this earth, preach for 30, well really for three years plus, about sin and the wickedness of it without providing hope and forgiveness and mercy and grace. That wasn't his approach. Sure, recognize the sin, call it for what it is, but we have to come back to the place where we begin to practice the art of restoration. Mending up literally has the idea of taking a bone that has been broken and resetting it. Now think about this. Christians, the church is called what? We are the body of Christ. Now follow the picture. If we are the body of Christ and someone in that body oversteps the bounds, he has now become a broken bone in the body of Christ. What does Paul say to that bone for the body to operate properly? What has to happen to the bone? Now let me ask you, you ever broken a bone? <laughs> you ever fallen before and, and broken a bone? You know the pain. And not only just the pain that is involved in the break, the pain that is involved in the healing. Nobody is saying that the restoration process is a walk in the park. Resetting that, that bone hurts. It, it's tender. But it's part of the healing process. And if the body of Christ, just like your own physical body, if something is broken, in order for whatever that bone is or whatever that limb is that has been broken, for it to operate in its, in its best case scenario again, it has to be reset and it has to heal. Here's what Paul says. Are you following this? Literally to set a broken bone in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. See, there's a perspective change. Someone who has fallen, someone who has been overtaken is part of the body of Christ and needs opportunity to heal and allow God to take care of the rest. Healing hurts. Healing takes time, but it is possible regarding sin. But I'll tell you this, much healing leaves lasting scars. And for some reason, it's those scars that we try to cover up, pretend like they don't exist, so that we can be the person that everybody thought we were at one point. What's the attitude behind this restoration process? It's the attitude of meekness. It's the attitude of humility considering thyself lest thou also be tempted. Because, listen, the easiest way to approach the wounded is to understand 
that there could be a, a substitution that takes place that could have just as easily been me as it was them. Because 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says this, Wherefore let him that thinketh take heed, lest he fall. Understanding also the pursuit of holiness can be perverted into self-righteous pride brings us to another fruit of the Spirit, not just love, but also meekness. Church, listen to me, and I'm done. The restoration of a sinner deals with the acknowledgement of and the agreement of a person's need for forgiveness. That when a person steps into sin, that sin is an overstepping of the boundaries that God has established. And no, we are not approving of that sin. We are condemning of that sin. But we are also not saying that when a person oversteps a boundary, that is a closed book on the chapter of that man or woman's life. That's the end of them. They're done. We write them off. God can never use them again. That is foolish and that is unbiblical. That is not love. So look at verse 2. Ready? Remember, I told you, I want to be very, very graphic with you and help us to understand what it looks like to love one another, okay? So when you go to verse number two, what does it say? Bear ye one another's, what? Burdens. Now, I have often looked at that verse in the light of burdens, struggles, health issues, prayer requests, that is, that is burden bearing. Definitely encompassed in that phrase is the idea of carrying the weight of someone else's life. That's part of being a church family. When one person struggles, we all struggle. When one person rejoices, we all follow suit. That's part of being a, a family. But when you look at it in the context of where it falls, verse number one is dealing with overstepping the bounds that God has established. So what would be the burden found in number two, verse two? The logical conclusion would be the specific burden that Paul mentions in verse number two is the burden of carrying the guilt of sin. And so watch this. Bear ye one another's burdens. Now, I put this thing around all the time, and I should have left you up here, Hudson, but I'm going to, I'll spare you for a moment, okay? I carry this around with me, and, and if you notice, um, if you, a lot of times when you have something heavy, what do you do? You kind of lean to one side, right? You get this weird posture going because of the weight of something that's on one side. We know very well what it is to fall into sin. Well, how do we know? Because we've been there. <laughs> we can identify with it. And if we are going to do exactly as Christ called us to do, if we are going to love one another, baseball bats and bullhorns have no place in the body of Christ. But verse number two calls us to a different standard, and that is this. When a person oversteps the boundary that God has established, and in doing so has thrown on them the heavy weight of sin, the heavy weight of guilt, that is not the instance for us to absolutely beat them down already because they're, they're burdened with their own baggage. But as a matter of fact, what Paul is teaching us to do is if we are going to love one another, if we are going to practice Galatians 6 verse 1, and that is a practice of restoration, what does it look like? It's sloppy, it's messy, it's not always fun, but in verse number two, it looks like this. It looks like bearing one another's burdens. It's part of our role. Shouldering what someone else is going through is exactly what Christ did for, for us. 
1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says this, Who his own self, referencing Christ, who his own self bare our burdens, our sins, in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whom stripes we are healed. Can I tell you this? Christ was willing to carry the burdens of my sin to the cross. Why is it that we can't carry the burdens of each other's sins to get coffee? Why? Because it requires us to be honest about who we are? Maybe. Because it requires us to be transparent about my sinfulness? Yeah, because we don't, we don't like that. We don't want to be that honest. But here's what it looks like. If we are going to live out what Christ has called us to, then I'm going to leave this bag right here and um, just say this. If this represents the burdens of sin I carry around, the biblical perspective is that somebody else comes up here and picks it up and helps me carry it. We go through life together. Good, bad, ugly. Because we all know that every perfect smile is a hurting person. We all know that just what you see on social media isn't exactly who that person is. But for some reason, that philosophy is carried into church. And when we say we're doing fine, the honest answer is we're really not. And when we feel isolated and alone, like we're going through this thing called life all by myself, because we as a church have failed to love each other in this room. And listen, if you can't love somebody in this room, you're not going to love somebody outside of it. You can't. If that relationship with God is not established and maintained, your relationship with others will not succeed. Listen, there are many differences represented between all of us in this room. Our finances are different. The size of our house is different. The number of our kids is different. But one thing we all have in common is this. We all have our burdens to bear. We all have our faults. We all have our failures. We all have our grief. We all have our guilt. So here's the picture. When we see someone down under the weight of a burden, do we grab the baseball bat and start hammering away at them just to make them feel worse about themselves? Do we grab a, a microphone and announce it to any willing ear who will listen about what an awful person somebody is? Or do we begin to practice what God says in Galatians 6 and we focus on the restoration of that person, which, yes, begins with an agreement concerning their sin. You were wrong. This, this hinders and it separates your fellowship with God, but it doesn't end there. There is hope, there is forgiveness, and there is mercy that can be found. It's this beautiful thing called restoration. See, Christ would have us to lovingly seek to restore that person and then to assist by lifting him up. Not casting our own before the wolves. Let me ask you this. As we go into this next year, and now not every one another statement in the scriptures is this hard, okay? It kind of led with the tough one to get it out of the way. But when it comes to loving one another, when we look at this visual, which one are we more inclined to take up? Our bats, our bullhorns, or are we going to go next to that person as sloppy as it might be, as time-consuming as it might be, and say, listen, I know that you have messed this up. I'm no better than you, but let's go through this thing together. 
Let's find forgiveness. Let's find restoration, not just in your relationship with each other, but in your relationship with the Lord. That's what love looks like. Remember Jesus' command in John chapter 13? The command was this, that we love one another. How? As Christ loved us. So what does that look like? Well, beyond bearing one another's burdens, that's going to be the study over the next several weeks. We are loved so that we can love one another. But for the purposes of our time together this morning, let me ask you this. What is our reaction when we hear about someone who overstepped the boundaries that God has established? I, I am extremely concerned, not, not just about statistics. We, we know that each stat might have some variables behind it that, you know, that we can debate. But the concern is this. If we as members of the same body of Christ view someone who is broken as someone that needs to be cast off and not worthy of, of healing and being reset into the body of Christ, then it's no wonder we're living in such a wild world of wickedness and sin. Because listen, if we cast our own before the wolves, surely we're going to take them and throw them before the same group. I, my, my prayer would be this, seriously. And, and I started with this in Galatians 6 to, to kick off this series intentionally because a lot of this one another stuff begins right here. It begins with loving one another. And what does that love look like? It's, it's coming alongside of each other because we're, we're all sinners. And I don't know where we've gotten to the point where we cannot we cannot fathom the idea that someone has sinned. It just blows our mind that that person has sinned in their life because for so long we have painted a picture of perfection inside the walls of a church that when sin is finally realized, it's, it's crazy. It's mind-blowing. Well, here, let's start this off very uncomfortable. Your pastor, this guy, is a sinner. Can I totally ruin any preconceived notions that you have about me and tell you I'm a sinner? Just like anybody else in the room, I sin daily. Ask those guys. I'd be happy to tell you stories. But in this family, just because a kid disobeys or just because we have an argument or just because someone, um, someone messes up in the family, we don't kick them to the curb and say, find a new family. We might joke about it. But that's not our real opinion. We work through it in love. Sure, it takes time. Sure, it hurts. Sure, it leaves scars. But those scars are instant reminders of times when we saw God's faithfulness and forgiveness in our life. Then if that's how it happens in this physical family, why would it be any different than the family of God? Why do we think that the church has to be perfect? The only thing that is righteous in this person is the fact that the righteousness of Christ has been placed on my account. That's it. Because the Lord knows I can't get there. So the one thing I'm going to ask you to do is this. Would you, would you understand the picture? And that is the burden-bearing responsibility that God has given to each of us. Come alongside of each other. Encourage each other. 
go through life together as a family, as a body of Christ. And when a bone is broken, we don't, we don't laugh at it. We don't try to remove it. We try to reset it to the glory of God so that we can have an impact loving others as Christ loved us. That's what it's all about.